Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast with Dr. David O. Ogaga. We started a kind of series last week. I'm going to build on it today. Started on what do we really mean when we talk about weeping, acknowledging of teeth. What do we mean by that? So I want to continue with that today. Um, I will attempt to make a few definitions today about weeping acknowledging of teeth. And the next week, I only actually need to do just three series on this. So next week, I'll be able to probably round up if uh, I don't go a little bit deeper. But I'm sure for those of us who were around last week, and understand he came to us as touching what is weeping acknowledging of teeth. Amen? All right. So again, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to say, the commonly, the understanding is weeping acknowledging of teeth has to do with what happens when you get into hell or what is going to happen in hell. So if you are cast into hell, then there's going to be weeping acknowledging of teeth. That is our common understanding. But I want us to see it from a scriptural perspective. What is God saying? And from this study, you'll be able to see also who Jesus was talking to. And uh, I've always told you that one of the major keys to understanding scripture is to have or to think about what we call audience relevance. All right? So now, we're going to go on from today and the next week to really find out who Jesus was addressing when he was talking about weeping agnashing of teeth. Was it an issue of when you get to hell or when somebody gets to hell, then there'll be weeping agnashing of teeth? Mind you, it's a kind of phrase. There are two things there. There is weeping, there is gnashing of teeth, or to gnash the teeth out. However, let us begin to look at it. Um, Actually, the Greek word translated as gnash or gnashing, that is G-N-A-A-S-H-I-N, is from the, from the word which means to bite. To bite. That is actually from where the word is taken from. Um, and it describes like when an animal is trying to bite on someone or bite on something or bite on his prey, I mean on the prey. When an animal sees a prey and he wants to devour it or is, is angry against the prey, right? Then they gnash the teeth or they gnash the teeth as the case may be. One thing again we need to understand is as far as the New Testament is concerned, that word actually, if you look through all the scriptures, that word was describing the attitude of a people. It was not totally or exclusively an act of torment, but it was rather more of an anger. And I make you see that. Amen? It wasn't so much of sorrow in the sense of somebody is in hell and is tormented. It was in that sense. But it has to do with the pain you receive for losing a thing and getting angry, maybe for the people against the people that makes you to lose that thing. Okay, I'll give you some scriptures on that. Amen? Gnashing of teeth or weeping at gnashing of teeth actually... If you look at the whole New Testament, you find it, I think, about six times. It's about six times. The word is used about six times, uh, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. And then one in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Matthew, six times. Gospel of Luke, one time. Weeping agnation of teeth. Those two phrases coming together. But there is something that defines for us, like I was trying to say in the beginning, the true meaning of gnashing of teeth. That is excluding weeping, but gnashing of teeth. Now, if you can cast gnashing of teeth, 
You can also bring weeping and gnashing of teeth together. But let's take a look, a look at one particular scripture. The book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Look at that. Verse 54. It says, When they have these things, what things? You know the story. That has to do with Stephen. At the point at which he was being stoned to death. And Stephen said, He looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right of God. And I've tried to explain to you what that really meant. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, and you look at the whole picture of Acts chapter 7, from the beginning, it talks about how Abraham moved, how Moses was born, was supposed to be a deliverer, he was rejected, how Joseph was born, supposed to be a deliverer, he was rejected, and then he came down to Jesus, rejected. So the whole of that chapter, what you probably find most is, the Savior being given to a people and the rejection of that Savior. Are you there with me? Because he started the story from Abraham down to Moses, down to Joseph, down to Jesus. So it's a story of a Savior given to, or a Redeemer given to a people and not recognizing the Redeemer and then rejecting the Redeemer and the consequences that comes for rejecting the Redeemer. Because you see, each and every one of those redeemers kind of died. That's what uh, uh, Stephen was trying to bring out. If you look at it pro precisely, because for, for Israel or for the Jewish man, if you are not within the Jewish community, you are dead. All that land out like dead land. Okay? So for instance, when Moses left Egypt, he left the confine of the Hebrew people. Okay? So to them, he was dead. But he said, this man that was dead rose again to come back to Egypt to deliver the people. Now you see Joseph was put in the pits. Pit again symbolizes death. So they reported to the father that Joseph is dead. But Joseph saw face where? in Egypt and became the Redeemer. Are you going to the picture? Then he came to Jesus. Jesus was killed. He died. Three days he rose to become the Redeemer. So the whole picture was Savior has been given, rejected, dying, resurrecting to become what? Redeemer. Okay. Now there is a major issue for those of you who have not listened to uh, the message we heard from South Africa. There's a major issue that's connected to this, okay? The world is so clear that if you kill your brother, if you share innocent blood, then you must pay for it. The book of Deuteronomy. So here was the Jewish people that killed Jesus. And remember, Matthew 27, Judah said, I have betrayed an innocent blood. So now, when they said, or when Stephen said, I saw Jesus, the first thing that came to their mind is, if you are talking to us about Jesus, you are reminding us that we crucified an innocent blood, so judgment is coming to us. Did you get that? Because the law is there and they understood the law, that if you kill an innocent blood, there is no city of refuge for you. And, and, and they've come to conclude and they know it that they're actually crucified in the same blood. So here they were saying, we don't want to hear that. Because merely mentioning that Jesus has risen again and you are reminding us of that name, you are telling us that we are guilty of crucifying an innocent blood. Is that okay? Alright. So now hear what they said in verse 54. When they had these things, they were caught to the heart. And what happened? They gnashed on him with their teeth. Did you get that? They gnashed on him with their teeth. What does that mean? They were angry at him. It's like, let's kill this guy. Are you getting that? Hey, are you with me? Okay. They gnashed their teeth at him. It's, they were angry. 
it's like saying they hate test even now for reminding them and even calling for judgment unto them. So they gnash their teeth at him. I want you to understand what we're dealing with. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. This one reviews sort of precisely what gnashing of teeth really stands for. Is that okay? So it is something that is tied up with hatred for an individual. Okay? Um, based also on the things you've missed and perhaps the things you suffer, in quotes. Because here they have come to see that Stephen is calling for judgment upon them because they kill an innocent blood. And so they were angry and also you are thinking of the consequences of what they have done. Are we together? All right, praise the Lord. Okay, so who were these people in the first place that were gnashing their teeth against Stephen? It was not the whole of the Jewish people. It has to do with the religious people. The scribes and the Pharisees. Did you get that? Because this is very important. That when we get down, maybe next week, you'll be able to understand that all the parables that Jesus gave about the gnashing and the whipping of the, the whipping and gnashing of teeth were directed against the people. You'll find out more next week, but let's move on today. Amen. Praise the living God. So, like I said, it's basically a word that describes for us a kind of an anger and regret for losing a thing or feeling bad about someone you hate. It's not so much of sorrow in terms of tormenting hell. Hallelujah. And if we have come, help me Lord, if we have come to understand that most often when Jesus speaks to a people, he wasn't talking about the hereafter, he was talking about the now, then you conclude as well that the gnashing of teeth has nothing to do with the hereafter. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at the simple illustration meanwhile. Matthew 25. Hallelujah. In Matthew 25, you have the parable from verse 14. You have uh, a simple illustration of the parable. I think uh, this of the talent or whatever. Look at that, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servant. Remember the people he called? Which people? His own servant. And delivered unto them his goods. And unto when he gave five talents, unto another two, unto another three. I mean, one to every man according to his several ability and straight away took his journey. I go to verse 24. Then which I received the one talent came and said, I knew that thou art at hard man reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid that talent in the air and lo, thou hast had this then, or whatever. No, you know the story. Just, just go down and uh, let me, so that I would take time. But you know the story about the talent. Is that okay? All right. Let's go down to, what was it? Okay, verse 27. Take verse 27. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money into the exchanges, and then at my coming I shall have received my own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which has ten talents. For every one that had shall be taken, and he shall have abundance. But for him that had not shall be taken, even that which he had. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. I tried to explain that last week. How many of you remember that? Okay. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Let's get down to Luke's account of the same story of the talent. Luke's account, Luke 19. Luke 19. Praise the Lord. Luke 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. 
because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because he thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain noble man went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom to return. And he called his ten servants, completeness, and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. What is that? Rejection. Is that okay? And what did John 1.11 says? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Is that alright? Because this man that is going to go to get a kingdom and come back is Jesus Christ himself. Is that alright? Okay. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded that this servant to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much everyone had gained by trading. When he was returned, what does that mean? Okay, when he came to, if you want to look at it precisely, it is when he came, as it were, you can look at it from the point of Pentecost, but basically also when he came to punish the disobedient. All right? When he has come, when he has returned. You, you can, you see, look at this. After resurrection, Jesus spoke to Mary, Touch me enough, I'm not yet ascended to my father and your father. I mean, if you remember that. But we know the same day he touched. Is that okay? But he said, because he said, go to Jerusalem and tell the brethren of reason. That same day he appeared. Now, what happened there was he was functioning as a high priest. And every high priest must present the blood of sacrifice before the altar. So in functioning just like the high priest world, it's like he appeared before the most holy place to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice before he could come out again to bless the people. So right, I have not yet ascended. It's like saying, I have not yet presented the blood of sacrifice before the Lord. But you go tell them, I will see them. Is that okay? You can find the account precisely in Hebrews chapter 9 if you want to read. So again, we find out his return is not just when he appeared from that perspective, also, but it has to do with on the day of Pentecost, I will come again. There's a return that took place. Is that all right? But essentially, remember what he told them in the book of Matthew. He said, There are some of you standing here shall not taste of death until the Son of Man come in power. How many of you remember that? Good. What does that mean? He's talking about. Not just when he's coming back in the day of Pentecost, but when he's actually coming back, like when he talked about the cloud of heaven, we discussed that before, coming with the Roman army to deal with the disobedient Jewish people. Is that okay? So again, you need to understand that it's not a future thing, but he's dealing with that which has to take place because of his rejection as a savior that was sent to them. Is that all right? So when he said he went to a far country to receive a kingdom, we need to also understand that he's going to get a kingdom was to sit on the throne of his father David after resurrection. Because the promise was to the son of David to sit on his throne and to reign forever and ever. And Romans 1 made us understand that according to the flesh, he was the son of David. But according to the spirit, he was the son of God. Is that okay? Are we together? All right. So we find out this parable of the talent that we're reading here is directly connected to the Jewish people. It's like saying the Lord gave them opportunity to make investment as far as creation nation was concerned. The authority was to the house of Israel. I mean, when we get to reading the scriptures, we're going to see that. It talks about the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. How I many of you remember we read that last week? Who are then are the sons of the kingdom? It's like talking about the sons of hell or the sons of Belial or the sons of the kingdom. The same phrase identifies a specific set of people who have the common belief and understanding. So you have the sons of Belial, the sons of hell, the sons of the kingdom. So when you're talking about the sons of the kingdom, you're actually talking about the Jewish set of people because they were supposed to be the custodian of God's kingdom especially because the laws was given to them, the priesthood was given to them, and it was a kingdom, like you talk about the kingdom of Israel. You see, Solomon will talk about the kingdom of God. Use the word, the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And like I said before, in Exodus 19, he said, I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wind, 
and I made you a kingdom of priests and kings. Exodus 19. And so when he was giving them the law, he was constituting them into a kingdom on the face of the earth. So the Jewish people in this regard were referred to as what? The sons of the kingdom. So when he's saying the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness, what he's actually referring to is the Jewish people, religious said, who will not believe him, will not be able to partake of this kingdom which is going to be establishing after resurrection. In quotes. They will not partake of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They will not be part of that which Abraham, as it were, was going to experience. Anyway, let's look at something very critical again. I mentioned this last week, but let's just take a look at it. Mighty 22. Maybe the story will become a little bit easier for us now to, to pick from here. Matthew 22, verse number 1. And it says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Hmm? Now, Always understand, anytime he's talking about this thing, he's dealing with the kingdom and he's dealing with a parable. And I've already explained to you, you don't interpret parables like you're interpreting ordinary literature. Is that okay? They are metaphors and symbols and similes that you have to be able to see in every parable you read, especially as given by Jesus. Okay, here we say the kingdom is like the son of man. Or a certain king which made a married feast for his son. Who is this certain king? Is God. Who is the son? Jesus. Is that all right? And he sent for his servant to call them that were bidding to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent for other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidding, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come into the marriage. Hallelujah. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Who do you think these servants are? These are the prophets that were rising every morning to warn the people. These are the prophets that God was sending. Remember, Mike 23. Jesus said, we read that last week, 43 and thereabout. Following, scripture said, I send you scribes and prophets and wise men, but you will kill them. How many of you remember that? Good. I send you prophet, wise men, and scribes, whatever, and you will kill them. And he talked about the blood from Abel down to the blood of Zacharias. I mean, you follow this story? Okay. So here he's saying he sent his servant. The servants are the prophets that were speaking to the children of Israel. And here we say, uh, verse 6, And the servant took his servant, I mean the remnant took his servant, and treated them spitefully and slew them. Verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wrought, and he sent for his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Who are the armies here? Can somebody supply an answer? These are the Roman soldiers. He was giving them a parable, a kind of preview, if you will, of that which is going to come. Praise the Lord. Okay. So now, verse 8. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidding were not worthy. Go ye therefore into all the highways, and as many as you find shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servant, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be wailing, I mean weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now look at verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Hallelujah. Why were they doing that? Because they realized he was talking to them. 
<laughs> Is that okay? They knew he was talking to them. They were just pricked at heart. This man is addressing us. That's why the Bible said they took cancer and said, let's go kill him. Hallelujah. Okay. Now, if you look at it, every time you read about the kingdom, you see, the Jewish people used to speak of the glory and the benefit of the Messianic kingdom as a feast with parables. Anytime they're talking about, they're illustrating the kingdom, they illustrate it like a feast, and most often, marriage feast. Is that okay? Right. So you take time to read your Bible. Anytime you're reading, reading about the kingdom, reading about marriage, you just see that they're describing the kingdom. Okay. Look at Luke 14. Let's look at something in Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. Hallelujah. The Bible says, And he put for the parable to do which we are bidding. Uh, okay. When he marked both, then to choose out the chief room, saying unto them, When thou bidding of any man to a wedding sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidding of him, and neither had bid thee. And he come and said to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidding, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that be thee coming, he may say, the friend go up thither, then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meet with thee. For whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bid him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, let they also be thee again, and recompense be made thee. But when thou make a feast, call the poor. The maim and the lame. Amen. And the blind. Verse 14. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one of them that sat at meat with him how this thing, he said, Blessed is he that shall eat bread where? In the kingdom of God. You see? So, eating of bread, feasting, is always tied towards the kingdom of God. That's what I'm trying to bring out. All right, let's see, move on. I'm still trying to describe the feasting before I begin to illustrate again. Mighty 22 in relation to the feast. Okay, let's go down to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 in relation to the feast. Isaiah 25 is a Messianic chapter of the Bible. Just like most often, too, you see Messianic input in the book of Psalms. But especially Isaiah 25, Isaiah 11, they are Messianic chapters of the Bible. When I mean Messianic, the, the kingdom of the Messiah. And don't you forget, we've been able to explain that in these studies. The word Messiah is what often you see in the New Testament as Christ. When you talk about Christ, you're talking about Messiah. Is that okay? Right. So, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened. Am I right? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's get down. As I, I mean, uh, Matthew 25. Are we there? Let's first go back to Matthew 25. I'm sorry. <laughs> Matthew 25, not Isaiah. I just want to complete this before. Uh, just a little illustration there again. Mighty 25. Though we're still going to read Isaiah, but let's first look at Mighty 25. Verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lambs and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lambs and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with them. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to do what? To meet him. Amen? Hallelujah. What I've read this is this. The marriage feast of Israel often takes place in the evenings. This is what is being illustrated. Now, watch you. 
we are told this has to do with the rapture, but Jesus was illustrating the kingdom with this parable. And I tried to make you understand last week that when a Jewish man is hosting the feast, which has to do with the marriage feast, if I was the one having the feast, this is what I would do as a Jewish man. Traditionally, I have my table set in this hall, and then right at the gate, I'll have a kind of apron or dress, whatever. I give to some people, they'll line up the road. Whoever is coming in that is invited, they give him one to put on. You're going to go back to my 22 now to understand what I'm saying now. Tiny top to this. At midnight, the time the bridegroom is coming. Is that okay? All right. Now, here are the people by the gate. As you're passing by, they give you one of the dress to put on. To indicate that you were invited and you passed through the door. Is that okay? Remember already Matthew 22. The bridegroom or the guest, the, the host as it were, came in and found out there is somebody who do not have the dress. The question is, how did you come in here? What I mean is, I have enough dress made for all those coming into this place. It simply means you didn't come through the door, you came through the window. Because if you dare come through the door, you're going to get one of the dresses that I made. Are you getting that? Good. The book of Romans said, put it on the Lord Jesus. What is actually trying to illustrate to us that when he said, bind his hand on his feet, it simply means take authority from him and cause him not to function in the power of the name of Jesus. Bible said, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of Christ. Are you there with me? The hands is the place of power. You lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So bind his hand, stop him from doing ministry in my name because he do not have my identity. Is it simple? <laughs> so it's not something of tomorrow. So that's what Jesus was saying. Okay. Now come to the virgins. You have your corpse, you lie in the streets. It's like what you have bridesmaid now. Those are virgins. Is that okay? Good. They line up the streets expecting the bridegroom to come. Then this, in this parable, by implication, you're supposed to have enough oil. Is that okay? To be able to keep awake until the bridegroom you are expecting comes in. And how five of them, their oil went out. If I want to spiritualize that, it speaks of your five senses. Natural five senses. <laughs> Are you there with me? Good. So, that is the point. So now here we find that these five people could not wait to see the bridegroom coming to go in there. So you take Matthew 25 and Matthew 22, you get the total picture of what happens when a man is to take a wife in Israel. And he likened that to the kingdom. And again, that takes you to the point that when we're talking about the kingdom, it's a communion between you and Christ. First Corinthians, Corinthians 6, 7, the Bible says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. What does it mean to join? He that is united with the Lord, he that is married to the Lord, is one spirit. The two shall become one. Are you following so far? Hallelujah. Now, when you move inside the hall, there's a lot of feasting taking place. The lights are there. Amen. Remember, it is night or evening. So, the light lightens up the place. Now, there's enough food. So, what do you find in the hall when you move in there? There's rejoicing. There is light. There is joy. Is that okay? Hey, are we just good there? Good. <laughs> but now, what will happen outside because it is night? What do you think will be outside? Darkness. There is light in the hall, but there is darkness outside. Amen? So outside we find darkness. And again, 
not only darkness, we also find disappointment. Because you're not partaking of the feast, you're not partaking of the joy. You may be outside hearing what is going on, but you don't have access in. Now watch it. There is this man that came in, and then he was cast out. What do you think would be the state of that man? Anger, bitterness. Are you there with me? Because others are rejoicing, but he doesn't have access to that joy. <laughs> Bible talks about the oil of gladness. Praise the living God. Now, when you read the other parable we read before, he said, go into the highways and bring in the blind, the lame. <laughs> Time will not permit me to explain this, but I'm going to use this one word. What he's saying is, go and get the Gentiles in who are the rejected of the society. Because the rejected were outside of the covenant of faith. Oh, <laughs> are you catching that? Okay, now the Pharisees, this is getting good. The Pharisees themselves, they do not only reject the Gentiles, they rejected the blind, they rejected the lepers, they rejected the lame people. Everything that brings a kind of deformity, because scripture says, for instance, the blind man, a man with one eye, or a blind man, or somebody who has no testicles, should not minister. Any of those categories of people that have a blemish, the Pharisees rejected them. So Jesus is not saying, you leave the Pharisees alone. Go and get the Gentiles. Get the blind in the street. Get the lame in the street. Bring them into the kingdom of God. In other words, leave the religious people alone. <laughs> Are you still there with me? Just go get the people that will listen. Forget about religious people. <laughs> and bring them in. Now, this is what you're going to see. Why in Matthew chapter 8, the centurion, the centurion someone was healed, and Jesus was saying, men shall come from the west, from the east, from the south, and they shall sit on the table, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into what? Out of darkness. That's what we're saying. You go bring the lame, go bring the Gentiles, bring other people, bring the rejected, bring the one that religious people have rejected. Bring them in. That also tells you a target of evangelism. There are people in the street today who don't have churches to go to, who have stopped even going to churches. There are people who don't have understanding. There are people who can walk spiritually. These are your targets. Is that okay? Jesus is looking for them. And remember, he will send people to go. He's not going by himself. He is sending people to go. Go get them. Hallelujah. Are you still there? Okay. So, here in this picture we find that that mighty 23, I mean 25, 10 to 13, we see the despised people, you know, those who are not uh, supposed to be. Come bring them, let them become a guest. Uh, instead of just the natural, fleshly Jewish people who claim to be the children of who? Of Abraham. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, now, let me show you what... Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, go to Isaiah 25 now. Go to Isaiah 25. Let me show you this. Praise the Lord. <laughs> verse 9. Isaiah 25, verse 9. The Lord is speaking here. They shall not halt nor destroy in all my holy mountain... For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? We shall stand forward and a sign of all the people. To it shall what? The Gentiles seek. And Israel shall be what? Glorious. Did you get that? The sign and explain to you Last week. And sign is another one saying banner. Amen. The root of Jesse said, the standard of Jesse or the, the, the banner of Jesse, or the root of Jesse, which is Christ, shall be hosted. And the Gentiles shall seek him. 
Now remember the Bible says, even those who are not called by my name have sought me and found me. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, let me show you something. Just go to Romans 15. Paul referenced this particular passage in Romans 15. Look at it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. Look at it. Romans 15 verse 9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for what? For his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he said, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, O ye Gentiles, and Lord him, O ye people. Did you get that? Praise the Lord. So now, like I said, Isaiah 25 is the Messianic kingdom or chapter. And here the scripture is saying when the standard of Christ, which is the sign of the root of Jesse, is lifted up, the Gentiles will seek him. Now Paul coming in here saying, as an apostle of the Gentiles, making a declaration. This is the way it is written. Now you Gentiles rejoice. Now what is the main thing when joy comes in? Or what happens during the feast? It's a time of rejoicing. Are you there with me? Good. When a marriage is taking place, when the marriage is taking place, it's a time of rejoicing. So here, Paul is saying, yeah, Gentiles rejoice. What is he trying to say? You're already partaking of the feast of the kingdom. Did you get that? <laughs> Praise the living God. In other words, you are getting married to Jesus. Those who are truly supposed to be married to Jesus have rejected him and now you have been invited. You should be rejoicing because you are partaking of what they were supposed to be partaking of. So rejoice. Praise the living God. So this is what Paul was trying to say here. He was actually referencing Isaiah 25. Amen. And this is a simple thing. Now, what are we saying here? Everyone that is not, okay, look at that. When you are weeping, huh? it's simply an absence of joy. Am I right? Good. So, if the Bible says you're going to be cast into outer darkness, they shall be weakened, agnashing of teeth. What is that supposed to mean? It simply means you will not partake of the joy of the kingdom. You are not part of the marriage feast of the Lord. That's just it. It has nothing to do with what's going to happen when you get to hell. <laughs> anyway, you can experience both ways, here and there, fine. <laughs> if you're not part of him, you are in outer darkness. Amen? And <laughs> it's like, again, the outer darkness, a level of degree beyond just darkness. Because, look, scripture says, we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his judgment. He didn't say the power of outer darkness. So, that is like another level beyond just darkness. Huh? Are you there with me? Good. Now get it. How is this done in the true sense? I think, thank you Lord, I think it's simply a matter of knowledge being withdrawn from you. Oh, it's so easy. I'm getting that now from Genesis. You see, <laughs> when the Bible says, God created the light and created darkness, how did he create darkness? The only way for you to create darkness is to remove light. Oh, <laughs> is it simple? No, what is light? Light is knowledge. Light is wisdom. So to be cast into our darkness is to withhold knowledge from you. It's so easy. It doesn't require somebody, you know, 
And why is their hand and leg bound? Because knowledge is taken away from them. There is nothing for them to dispense. He is the light of the world. And if we are going to go, we go as the light of the world, reflecting him and dispensing what is given to us. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessel. And the Lord that commanded the light to shine in the beginning have commanded the light where? In our hearts. So, what does it mean to go into outer darkness? What does it mean to be cast in there? Let the source of the light be removed from you. You go into what? Outer darkness. Into a place of terrible ignorance. And in the place of ignorance, you can partake of the feast. In the place of ignorance, you can partake of the marriage feast. No joy. <laughs> no light. Are you still there with me? No fellowship with the Lord. The mystery of it is this. <laughs> you can be in this state and still do miracles. <laughs> you know what? That's what Jesus said. On that day, I will come and say, oh, come on. With these signs, I wonder your name. We hear the sea. We... Huh? And what was the reply he said he would give? Go away from me, you workers of what? Iniquity. For I knew you not. I knew you not doesn't mean he doesn't know you. Oh, are you sitting there with me? When God spoke to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? It wasn't like God didn't know where Adam was. He was hiding so God cannot see him. No. David is saying, even if I'm under the sea, you are there. There's nowhere to hide from the presence. So the fact that Adam was hiding behind a tree doesn't mean the tree obscured Adam from God. But when he said, Adam, where are you? He simply means, what is your state now as compared to where you were before you ate the tree? What is your new condition now? Is that okay? Are you still there? And then the Bible says, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and he brought forth a son. So to know is to be joined together. So when Jesus said, I knew you not, in other words, I have no fellowship with you. You are not my wife. Did you get that? I am not married to you. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, say, my desire is to present you as what? A chaste virgin unto Christ. So what does it mean to be a virgin? Scripturally speaking, it means a man that is not defiled in his thought, in his soul, in his understanding about who God is. He's a man that does not have idols in his heart in place of God. He's somebody who is open to receive God's ministrations, God's life, God's word. That is a virgin. To be a virgin is to walk by the word. James 1.18 he said, by the word of God, he has made a false fruit unto God. Revelation 14, the false fruit unto God are virgins. He said, there is no guile in their mouth. Meaning there is no lie, no deception. They are not corrupted. Where did the lie come from? Genesis 3. Are we together tonight? So when we're talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth, man, it's not something about tomorrow. It can happen to you now. Praise the living God. Once your light is taken away, the only source of light. Can you imagine what happened to the book of Revelation? I mean, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, speaking to one of the churches. He said, come on, if you don't come back to your fall, I will come quickly and take away your candlestick. Wow. Did you get that? What is the candlestick? It's the source of light. In other words, the little revelation you are receiving, I will take it away. You walk in ignorance. Oh, come on. And when you begin to walk in ignorance, the Bible refers to such people as those who groom in darkness. Because there's no light. So easy. <laughs> but you can be religiously okay without knowing that you are not partaking of the feast. I read today, forget the name of this minister in the United States, preached to his people got back home, shot himself. The first thing he did was to tell people, say, God is not hearing me anymore. Then he got back home and committed suicide. Yes. 
You can come to such a state in life. Huh? Hey, somebody saying, but come on. But you see, it happened in the Bible. If God ever intervened, Elijah will have committed suicide because he said, I'm not better than my fathers. That was a state of depression that came on him. It's like his only source of light was taken away. At that moment, it's like he was no longer hearing God. But that was a man that just contacted with the prophet of Baal. Kill all of them. Run away. And I said, man, life is not worth living. This man just preached yesterday. Preached to the church. Said, God is no longer hearing me. After all of his message. Went back home, took his gun. And blasted himself. Out of darkness. When your soul is devoid of light, you are in darkness already. Are you getting that? Now the only way for you to keep your life burning is to continuously be joined with you, with the Lord. Continue to partake of the marriage feast, experience and enjoy the kingdom light, the kingdom love, the fellowship of the brethren. Light continues to break forth into your soul and there is no way you come to the place of experiencing outer darkness to even go shoot yourself like the man did. Practically impossible. Listen. Scripture says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Did he say so? Neither things in the heaven, nor things in the earth, nor darkness, nor angel, nothing, nothing, not poverty, nothing. The love of God, I may understand that love is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You can stand on that at any point in time, knowing that God is for you and is not against you. Hallelujah. And if God is for you, no man can be against you. Man, let me tell you something. We call the kingdom, we are experiencing the kingdom. There is life in God's kingdom. Can I hear an amen to that? For further information and message order, please call plus 234 or you can visit our website at www.gkai.net. God bless you.